Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Tonight on The Readout. Fundamentally, a second Trump term could mean the end of American democracy as we know it. He has literally called for things like doing away with parts of the Constitution, wanting to weaponize the DOJ to enact revenge on his political enemies. We're running out of time in order to try to stop Trump from being in the Oval Office again. Former Trump staffers warn the nation the threat is real and democracy is at stake as we enter this presidential election year. Michael Fanone, one of the heroes of January 6th, joins me tonight. Also, two weeks to Iowa and DeSantis and Haley are still treating the frontrunner, Donald Trump, oh so gently, as if they don't really want to win. Plus, he was paid by the Trump campaign to find proof of widespread election fraud in 2020. He found none and told them so. They continue to push the big lie anyway. Ken Block is my guest tonight. Good evening, everyone, and Happy New Year. And I hope you enjoyed your celebrations. I certainly did. And we begin tonight having said goodbye and frankly, good riddance to the year of our Lord 2023, which was, to put it mildly, a rough one for the world. Horrible for children, from Ukraine to Israel to the Congo to Gaza. Deadly for journalists and not exactly great for democracy. So goodbye, 2023, and don't let the door hit you on the way out. We enter 2024, meanwhile, with some frankly huge questions that could determine the future of the United States, including fundamental questions about whether we will remain a democracy after this year. The biggest question of all, of course, is whether the president of the United States is, once elected, totally immune from the laws, including being the one person in the nation who is allowed to attempt a coup, avoid trial, and then run for office again. Donald Trump spent New Year's Eve looking pretty miserable at his Mar-a-Lago party, being entertained by rapper Vanilla Ice. If you're not sure who that is, never mind, it's not important. There was also a teenage mutant ninja turtle. Not super important to anyone who isn't in the cult. But the kind of year Trump is going to have legally turns out to be kind of important to the rest of us. Trump faces, of course, multiple court dates on 91 counts in three separate criminal cases, plus a civil fraud trial in New York and E. Jean Carroll's defamation suit. But it is the question of his participation in the 2021 insurrection that could determine whether his misery over losing the 2020 election becomes the dictatorship we get stuck in for however long. Perhaps Trump looked so unhappy because over the holiday, the state of Maine, through its secretary of state, ruled that Trump is ineligible to appear on that state's presidential ballot because of his role in the insurrection that culminated in the violent sacking of the Capitol by his supporters on January 6, 2021. Here is the secretary of state. I was duty bound Uh, to follow Maine law, to uh, ensure the candidates, all the candidates who appear on the primary ballot are qualified for the office they seek. The weight of the evidence 
all of the evidence made clear that Mr. Trump was aware of the tinder laid by a multi-month effort to delegitimize a democratic election, the election of 2020, and then chose to light a match on January 6th. And in just the last few hours, Trump filed his appeal to that ruling, claiming that it was the product of a process infected by bias and pervasive lack of due process, is arbitrary, capricious, and characterized by abuse of discretion. Over the same weekend, the state of California ruled to keep Trump on the ballot, as a Colorado judge had earlier before she was overturned by the state's Supreme Court. Also over the holiday, special counsel Jack Smith urged an appeals court to reject Trump's efforts to dismiss his federal election interference case on presidential immunity grounds, claiming it would, quote, threaten to undermine democracy. In his 82-page filing, Smith and his team wrote, separation of powers principles, constitutional text, history and precedent all make clear that a former president may be prosecuted for criminal acts he committed while in office, including, most critically here, illegal acts to remain in power despite losing an election. Rather than vindicating our constitutional framework, the defendant's sweeping immunity claim threatens to license presidents to commit crimes to remain in office. The founders did not intend and would never have countenanced such a result. Meaning that this election year, 2024, will require the Supreme Court to answer that fundamental question of whether a former president who committed insurrection to try and overturn an election can attempt to return to office through an election as if nothing happened. And if they can't, can any of the politicians who participated in the insurrection run again? And the court that will decide that foundational question about our democracy includes one member whose wife was part of the coup, and other members who sure do appear to be pure partisans rather than sober triers of fact who call balls and strikes based on the Constitution. In other words, basically, America, we've got a problem. Joining me now is Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center and professor of law at George Washington University Law School. He is the author of the forthcoming book, The Pursuit of Happiness, How Classical Writers on Virtue Inspired the Lives of the Founders and Defined America. And Mary McCord, former acting Assistant Attorney General for National Security, MSNBC legal analyst and co-host of the MSNBC podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump. Thank you both for being here. I normally would all uh, do ladies first and Happy New Year to both of you. But I'm going to actually do this in reverse and start with you, Jeffrey Rosen, and get your level of confidence that the Supreme Court of the United States cannot rule that a president is immune from prosecution and that the founders somehow divined every member of Congress, every member of the United States Senate and House to be officers of the United States, but not the president. So on the first question, I am pretty confident that the founders did not expect the president to be a king. And the idea that the Supreme Court would induce sweeping immunity for all presidential acts is not convincing. And therefore, I think the Jack Smith will get a good result on that case. The second case is much harder. And the question of what the Supreme Court will do involves a series of questions. First, what's an insurrection? 
Second, is this part of the 14th Amendment that bars people who committed insurrections from holding office self-executing? Third, is this a political question the court should avoid? Basically, it's going to force the originalist justices to confront the tension between the fact that the text seems to disqualify President Trump and then pragmatic considerations like them not wanting 50 states to reach different decisions for their own balance. So it just is going to be the most momentous case since Bush v. Gore, and it will have huge implications for the election, and there's no easy way for the Supreme Court to duck it. And the thing is, Mary, you know, I, I have no confidence. I, I'm just going to tell you I don't have a lot of confidence. Um, Mr. Rosen has much more confidence than I do that there is any sort of originalist thinking. To me, it's a political question for six of these justices of whether what outcome they prefer to have associated with themselves. Um, what, what is your level of confidence? So on the immunity question, I actually think there is a chance that if the D.C. Circuit rules in a comprehensive ruling mm -hmm. that there is no absolute immunity for a, for a former president for crimes committed while in office, that the Supreme Court might just deny cert in this case. Uh, you and know, deny cert, for, for those who are not lawyers, means? Means would not take the just case. Just don't take it at all. Don't take it at all. Okay. Um, and, you know, they already denied Jack Smith's request that they take it and just leapfrog over the D.C. Circuit. Yeah. Now, in part, I don't think that's because they didn't think it was important. I think it was because the D.C. Circuit had already accelerated its briefing. Yeah. You know, we've already almost fully briefed. We'll be fully briefed by midnight tonight when Donald Trump's reply brief is due. Argument is next Monday. Uh, you know, it's going to move so fast. In, in some ways, I think the Supreme Court thought, let's just see what they have to say. Yeah. But it also gives them an out. If they think that, this, that the circuit rules correctly, you know, they did this in Trump v. Thompson, the case that was about whether the House Select Committee could get the presidential records right. that the former president claimed executive privilege for. Yeah. The D.C. Circuit ruled the, that no President Trump, you, former President Trump, you can claim executive privilege, but we weigh that against, you know, various tests, and here it doesn't prevail. And the Supreme Court denied cert in that case. Yeah. They did not take that case up. So I think there is a chance it could stay out of the Supreme Court. If it goes to the Supreme Court, I do think Jack Smith by far has the better of the arguments, mm -hmm. and he is supported now from some very substantial um, former Republican administration officials going back five administrations, sure. as well as other conservative lawyers mm -hmm. who are arguing, making additional arguments, such as the fact that it would violate the executive vesting clause of the Constitution to provide criminal immunity for a former president for a who, when president, um, committed crimes in order to remain in office right. after his four-year term, yeah. that the Constitution vests in the president for four years and only four years, yeah. unless reelected, yeah. that it would directly violate that. It's a powerful, powerful brief yeah. and also makes arguments that if he can commit crimes like that to stay in office, yeah. he could, in, he could uh, use the military to sure. stay in office, right, which would violate cr criminal uh, offenses and certainly could not have ever been what the founders anticipated. So I am optimistic on immunity. On the 14th Amendment, Section 3 disqualification for having yeah. engaged in insurrection, it's interesting because right now, President Trump, former President Trump, still has not sought uh, Supreme Court review of the Colorado Supreme Court's decision. The Colorado GOP has sought review, right. but only on three issues. The office, off, office officer issue, does the 14th Amendment Section of 
three uh, apply on its own, mm -hmm. or do you have to have implementing legislation by Congress? And are we the Republican Party, yeah. uh, where our First Amendment rights violated by our rights to associate together by not being able to put our candidate on the ballot? They have not questioned the ruling that President Trump engaged in an insurrection. And no one has. I mean, but first of all, let's yes. do two things. So let me first put up the 14th Amendment, Section 3, just for, for those of you, to just to, so we can just refresh our memory. No person shall hold any office, civil or military, under the United States, who, having previously taken an oath as an officer under the United States to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. No, so far, I have not noted, um, Jeffrey Rosen, any court disputing that, Donald Trump engaged in insurrection. Even the Colorado court that said he could stay on the ballot said he did do insurrection, right? He, they said they just didn't have the power to take him off the ballot. And, and I just want to put up the number of states where these ballot challenges are actually happening, because this actually matters. If we have a, a country where the one person who's allowed to do a coup is the president of the United States, I feel like that's a big problem for us being a democracy. It means no president, to Mary's point, would ever have to leave. And in all of these states, if Trump cannot be on the ballot, he cannot get to 270 without a lot of the without this. So is, is this now the Supreme Court deciding in some ways whether we get to stay a democracy? Well, it's a hugely important case. As you say, there were two courts, New Hampshire and Michigan, which refused to kick him off the ballot for different reasons. But they said that individual state officials shouldn't decide whether or not he committed insurrection because you need enabling legislation from Congress before that decision can be made. The U.S. Supreme Court may also ask whether the procedures for deciding he engaged in insurrection were adequate. In Colorado, there was a trial. In Maine, the Secretary of State decided on her own based on the January right. 6th report. So there are so many ways that the Supreme Court could try to avoid this or not kick him off the ballot in some states, but not others. But there's no easy way to avoid the question. And in the end, they're just going to have to interpret the Constitution. You know, J Jamie Raskin, I think, made a really strong argument, which is that if, if Trump was, you know, 28 or 26 or couldn't be president because of the age limit, that is automatic. There's there, The secretary of state would just make that decision because constitutionally couldn't be on it. But the constitution is very clear that if you engage in insurrection, you cannot run for office or hold office. There's another question here. There's a, a watchdog group, and it's called American Oversight, which has filed an amicus brief um, on Friday saying that the appeals court actually can't take the case at all. Um, and this is what they said. The American Oversight Amicus Brief argues Supreme Court precedent from 1989 prohibits a criminal defendant from immediately appealing an order denying immunity unless the claimed immunity is based on explicit statutory or constitutional guarantee that there won't be a trial. Trial will never occur. Trump's claims of immunity rest on no such explicit guarantee. Therefore, given that Trump has not been convicted, Jeffrey Rosen just sort of re uh, referenced that as well, since he hasn't been convicted or sentenced, his appeal is premature. He actually can't appeal it yet. Is that a strong argument? I think that argument has legs, but it has never been decided in the context of presidential immunity. And in the in civil cases, the Supreme Court has, has, has said there is limited immunity for a president when, in fact, it's complete immunity, but it's limited to situations when the president was acting in, in the context of their official acts. In his acts, official capacity, official right. Official acts, right? And so, in fact, even Mr. Trump, in his, um, you know, in his... Uh, 
uh, arguments in the Court of Appeals argues, doesn't argue for more than that. He says, I'm entitled to immunity for Period. everything done within my official act. So right. I couldn't just murder somebody because right. that wouldn't be part of my official act. Sure. Right? Um, so I think that I think that there is there is good case law. The Supreme Court has indicated that constitutional arguments that you're not that you shouldn't have to be put to the burden of trial and right. need to have their 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 grounding in the explicit text of the Constitution or a statute. Yeah. But they did that in a context of a case that was not an immunity case. Right. And so I think it remains to be seen what the Supreme Court will say about yeah. presidential immunity. And then there's the factor of do we trust them to make a decision? The both of you are doing such a great job of explaining the law and the constitutional precedent and what it meant. But I hope that's how they're going to do it and not based on what they would prefer, which is what I kind of think they're going to do. But we'll see. Jeffrey Rosen, Mary McCord, thank you both very much. God bless us, everyone. Up next on The Readout. If it seemed like a no-brainer that Trump's insurrection would hurt his chances of ever being elected to anything ever again, think again. Not only is he dominating the pre-primary polling, a growing number of his supporters are actually believing his biggest and most dangerous lies. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. It was not an insurrection. These are people that were there to attend a rally, and then they were there to protest. Now it devolved, and, and, and it devolved in, into a riot. They were peaceful. They were orderly and meek. These were not insurrectionists. They were sightseers. Why am I the only person on the stage, at least, who can say that January 6th now does look like it was an inside job? Certain Republicans and members of the conservative media have gone overboard this year in downplaying the insurrection and Trump's role in it. So it's no surprise that now a significant number of Americans do not even think it was his fault. A new poll from The Washington Post and the University of Maryland found that only 53 percent of Americans and just 14 percent of Republicans, one four, think Trump bears a great deal or a good deal of responsibility for January 6th. Those numbers are down significantly from the last time the poll was conducted in 2021. Joining me now is Michael Fanone, former D.C. Metro police officer who was badly injured by the insurrectionist mob on January 6th, 2021. Um, Michael Fanone, it is great to finally have you on the show. It has been a long time coming. So thank you so much for taking the time. And I just want to get your reaction to hearing that that is what Americans now think. They agree with Tucker Carlson that the people who were attacking you were peaceful, ordinary, meek. Yeah, I mean, listen, it, it pisses me off to no end, but I also uh, I understand 
Um, you know, when you have uh, people like, you know, uh, presidential candidates, Republican presidential candidates, governors, members of Congress, elected leaders, you know, people that hold positions of authority in this country, telling their constituents lies and BS like you just heard, uh, you know, then that's that's going to be the end result. People are not going to know the truth about January 6th, the reality of that day, the experience that so many police officers like myself had um, battling with these violent insurrectionists at the Capitol. Let me let you listen to some young voters. These are some voters who are at something called America Fest, which is Turning Point USA, which is that right wing organization. Uh, they held something called America Fest. And this is what young voters said about the insurrection. Yes, I think January 6th might have been an inside job. If you watch some of the footage, you can see there's several people who have like microphones in their ears who look like feds, and they're also trying to get riots started. I don't think it was an insurrection. There wasn't much violence. I do believe it was an inside job because the Capitol security should be some of the best security in the country, and these people got in with ease. I mean, the Capitol security should be some of the best security in the country. You were not a Capitol Police officer. You were called in because they were being overwhelmed. Where do you think this idea comes from, that this was somehow done by the feds? You were there, and I think it's pretty clear to you that this was done by civilians or, some, in some cases, people who are actually law enforcement or military, but not I mean, doing those, it for the, those idiots. Those idiots that you just played uh, are just repeating the lies that they've heard, uh, you know, their masters within the Republican Party um, echo for the past three years. And what is do you think as somebody who, you know, you're in the world, you know, you're not a pundit, you're not this is, the, you know, you, you, you talk about your own personal experience and you experience these people firsthand. Do you think this is a belief system that is changeable or do you think that this is now going to be dogma in part of our country that people just won't believe that the experience you had happened? No, I mean, I, I used to um, I used to think that, you know, by educating people about my experience, about the experiences of law enforcement on January 6th, that I could somehow uh, convince people that, you know, regardless of their political affiliation, that January 6th was a an attack on our democracy uh, and at the very least an attack on police officers who, you know, were just doing their job that day. Um, you know, the same job that everyone asks them to do all across this country uh, on a daily basis. But, you know, now we've gotten to a point where, you know, there's there's really only uh, two people, two kinds of people in this country. There's people that support MAGA, whether it's actively or passively uh, and enable uh, people like Donald Trump to continue to peddle the lies uh, and inspire violence all throughout this country. And then there's those that oppose MAGA and that are going to fight like myself uh, to prevent Donald Trump and his sick offense uh, from holding office in this country. What will it say about us as a country if Donald Trump becomes president again after supporting and fomenting an insurrection? I think that it it says that we've given up on democracy in this country, uh, that you know, the the outcome, you know, the ends essentially justify the means. Uh, 
uh, and that the rule of law is meaningless um, in America. What has been the reaction of your fellow law enforcement in general? Do you get what, what you're saying? Is that what fellow law enforcement in general are saying to you about your speaking out about the insurrection and about Trump? I mean, I've always said, you know, my, uh, law enforcement is a microcosm of our society. There is still a great deal of law enforcement officers, especially outside of the D.C. area uh, and inside, unfortunately, the D.C. area that support Donald Trump. Um, maybe not so much because of uh, his actions on January 6th, but because they support the message and they support the, the ideology uh, behind the MAGA movement. Um, they believe that because Donald Trump says he supports law enforcement, that Donald Trump does, in fact, support law enforcement. Um, I, I think the I, evidence I is. It. Yeah, I think the evidence is fairly clear from your experience that he does not. Uh, Michael Fanon, uh, please come back. Thank you very much. We really appreciate it. We know this anniversary is coming up this uh, very soon this week in a few days. So thank you so much for spending some time with us. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And still ahead, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis vow to pardon Trump if he is convicted of trying to incite an insurrection. Upping the stakes just two weeks from the Iowa caucuses. That and more when we come back. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by the Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. Hey everyone, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? We're back with another installment of our special series with Pod 2024, The Stakes. I'm talking to experts about both Joe Biden and Donald Trump's records on specific policy areas during their time as president. This week, a biggie. AbortionEveryday.com founder Jess Valenti on the stakes of reproductive rights. Conservatives, Republicans would like us to believe that this is something that voters are sort of super polarized on, that we're evenly split down the middle. And that's just not true. Voters want abortion to be legal, even in red states, even in purple states. That's why we're seeing attacks on democracy. That's this week on Why Is This Happening? Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and follow. We are two weeks from the Iowa Republican caucuses. They will be the first test of Donald Trump's continued hold on Republican voters and the lead up to a likely rematch of the 2020 election that will determine the future of American democracy. And while Americans don't agree on many things, as the Associated Press notes, recent polls show that most Americans do not want a Biden-Trump rematch. And yet, they're probably going to get one. Since there effectively is no Democratic primary with President Biden as the incumbent and the state parties lining up behind him. And Donald Trump is still the front runner among Republicans. And any attempt by his rivals to sell themselves as reasonable alternatives are going even further down the tubes. Case in point, last week, when former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley refused to name slavery as the cause of the Civil War, a war launched by the secession of South Carolina over slavery. Haley capped off the holiday week with her clearest answer yet about how she'd use her pardon power if she became president, with Ron DeSantis following suit. 
I would pardon Trump. A leader needs to think about what's in the best interest of the country. What's in the best interest of the country is not to have an 80-year-old man sitting in jail that continues to divide our country. Well, I've already said that long ago. I mean, I think we got to move on as a country. And, um, you know, it's like, like Florida did the Nixon because you just, you know, the divisions are just um, not in the country's interest. Joining me now is Jelani Cobb, dean of the Columbia Journalism School and staff writer for The New Yorker. And David Jolly, MSNBC political analyst and former Republican congressman who is no longer affiliated with that party. Thank you both for being here. Uh, so much to talk about about Nikki Haley. I do want to start with the pardon piece of it first, though, David, um, because, you know, the current president, Joe Biden, is an 80 year old man and Donald Trump's probably would be attorney general says he's going to prosecute him and throw him in prison. So I wonder if Nikki Haley believes that that applies to Joe Biden or if it means you can't throw one specific 80 year old man in prison. Yeah, Joy, the bad faith and hypocrisy from Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis is remarkable. Their their willingness, their pronouncement that they will prejudge this case and prejudge the ultimate outcome for Donald Trump. Look, Ron DeSantis, he has suggested doing the same thing with migrants at the border, that border agents should be able to prejudge what's in the backpack and use deadly force against migrants from Central America. So for Donald Trump, he's prejudged it to say, no, I'm going to let the old man out of jail, no problem. I'd be curious to say to Nikki Haley and, and Ron DeSantis, what about Hunter Biden? They're very divisive. That, might, that would be a very divisive conviction. I'm sure they mm. would feel so uh, empathetic for the divide in the country on that issue as well. Obviously, I joke, but what it shows is a complete lack of leadership. And I think it also shows why there has not really been a Republican primary to speak of, because there is no daylight, not just on confronting Donald Trump on criminality, but actually now just going along with it. And then when you bring in the issue of race and other policy matters, zero contrast between Haley, DeSantis and Trump. It explains Trump's 40 point lead. I do want to. Right. And, and since, Jelani, you are you are you are you are a history, historian of record here. Uh, and so I want to give this one to you. I just want to remind folks. And I know that we did uh, the my wonderful fill in last week uh, did this on the show. But I just want to replay once again what Nikki Haley had to say about the Civil War. And I want you all to keep in mind as she's speaking, she was the governor of South Carolina. What was the cause of the United States Civil War? Well, don't come with an easy question or anything. I mean, I think the cause of the Civil War was basically how government was going to run, the freedoms and what people could and couldn't do. What do you think the cause of the Civil War was? Thank you. And in, in the year 2023, it's astonishing to me that you answer that question without mentioning the word slavery. What do you want me to say about slavery? No, um, uh, you've answered my question. Thank you. Next question. What is that performance? This woman was governor of the state where the Civil War began because they seceded over slavery. Well, the interesting thing about this is that, you know, in fact, that person did ask an easy question. Yeah. It was a very straightforward question. Uh, and should there be any doubt, you'd simply have to look at the Articles of Secession drafted by the South Carolina legislature in which they state explicitly that they are leaving the union in order to protect the institution of slavery. Uh, it, it's not, you know, uh, for all of the um, complexity and, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, 
pseudo, uh, uh, you know, vague, uh, opaque kinds of, of, <laughs> of rhetoric that she used. It is a very straightforward, and the people living at the time were clear about why they were doing what they did. Now, the other part of this is that the calculation that's being made is whether you can actually say that in front of an electorate that actually does not believe what slavery, the kind of a la carte reality uh, version of this, where people just believe whatever they want, whatever makes them feel good uh, is what they believe. And so you can't say that to that electorate uh, and uh, and not pay a consequence for it. I think that the calculation is political, certainly not historical. Yeah, and, and by the way, Nikki Haley was a big supporter of the Confederate flag right up until the moment she had to sign the legislation that some Democrats passed, taking it down because of what happened, uh, the massacre in Charleston. So politically, and also there were some foreign car makers that were like, we're leaving if you don't do it. You know, Ron DeSantis played along with that, David Jolly. He said he called what um, her answer incomprehensible word salad and said that Haley had some problems with some basic American history. But, uh, you know, Ron DeSantis, when he was a high school history teacher, taught slavery exactly the way Nikki Haley said it. He was known for having minimized the role of slavery in, this, in, uh, in, in the Civil War. And he passed a law in which he, they're teaching in Florida that slavery was good for the blacks because it gave them job skills. So it's not like it's just her. He thinks that he can own her. He believes yeah. the same thing, or at least he says he does. Joy, it is so unsettling to watch Nikki Haley in that exchange and to see her additional exchanges where she there's always a but, but, but or a caveat. And I will say I'm, I'm a contemporary of Nikki Haley's in age, also a child of the South. And, and I know the experience of getting exposed, almost indoctrinated at times to the argument that the Civil War was about states' rights. But eventually, as you mature and as your brain matures and your heart and soul matures, you realize what a bad faith argument that is that you've been exposed to. That, yes, it was about a state's rights, the state's rights to engage and permit human slavery. And ultimately, you reconcile that and realize the Civil War was about slavery. And I think what is so unsettling is to see Nikki Haley at 51 years old asking to be president of the United States still trying to equivocate and attend to both of the constituencies of that debate. There, there is no both-sidism to this. It is about yeah. slavery. And I think on, on drawing a contrast with Donald Trump, the one thing we probably didn't expect is that they would go down this road of offending the electorate on issues of race, just like Donald Trump did. And that's where there's no daylight now. Uh, yeah, and Rhonda, again, Rhonda Sands is no better. I do want to just pivot to another thing, because there's another thing happening, Jelani. There, there is this sort of open war on black progress, black history. Um, Claudine Gay, the president uh, of Harvard University, at least up until she resigned, um, is now the latest casualty of that. Christopher Rufo, um, who is out there touting and, you know, high-fiving and claiming the scalp of Claudine Gay— Telegraph that this was what they were going to do, that they were going to associate um, these DEI professors of colleges with BLM and decolonization and Hamas in the public mind and get rid of them. He's now claiming victory. He telegraphed that this was the campaign. Why are these elite colleges capitulating to it and essentially making it so uncomfortable for these women leaders that they have to step down to be replaced by white men? Because that is the goal well, I mean, of Christopher Rufo and his the, gang. The same thing. 
you know, we saw the same thing with critical race theory, uh, where again, he telegraphed and said that, you know, he was going to associate that term um, with every negative connotation uh, that people could imagine, uh, irrespective of what the term actually represented, you know, a very specific uh, and particular body of legal scholarship uh, around the, the efficaciousness of, of civil rights litigation. You know, uh, very highly particular kinds of, of uh, scholarly inquiry. Uh, but by the time he was done, you know, it was kind of Cold War, uh, McCarthyite level uh, hysteria. Uh, and so the same thing, they're running the same playbook, uh, except yeah. now we have kind of individuals that are being attached to it. Uh, and, you know, uh, for the for the record, you know, when we saw Elise uh, Stefanik, Representative Stefanik, mm-hmm. tweet uh, that she would always deliver yeah. uh, in the, yeah. the, the aftermath of the resignation, it was like, was that something you campaigned on? Was that yeah. your district wanted? Like, we, we voted for you in order for you to dispatch the president of Harvard University? Apparently. Uh, so this is... Pure, pure culture warfare here uh, in the guise yeah. of, uh, of of intellectual uh, inquiry and and you know ethical concern. Yeah, and there's no intellectual inquiry about it. They're just trying to take out any woman or person of color who leads elite universities so they can give them to the people they prefer, which is the guys used to have in the 50s. Uh, Jelani Cobb, that is me saying that, not you. Jelani Cobb, thank you. David Jolly, thank you. Coming up, I will be joined by voter fraud investigator Ken Block, who was hired by Trump to look into his claims of fraud in the 2020 election. His new book lays out his findings and describes his fruitless attempts to get Trump to accept them as fact. We'll be right back. To this very day, Donald Trump continues to lie about the fact that he lost the 2020 election fair and square. He repeats a slew of fabricated claims and lies, even though he's been told by his attorney general, his campaign director, his daughter, his son-in-law, his White House counsel, the courts, and a raft of other people that there was no widespread fraud. In fact, his campaign paid not one, but two companies to investigate the claims, but both came back to him with the same results. There is no evidence to support your claims. Those two companies, Berkeley and Sympatical Software Systems, were paid roughly a million dollars to investigate the baseless claims repeated by Trump and his associates like Rudy Giuliani, some of whom are now his co-defendants at Infinitum. Ken Block, owner of Sympatico, told The Washington Post back in April, no substantive voter fraud was uncovered in my investigations looking for it, nor was I able to confirm any of the outside claims of voter fraud that I was asked to look at. Every fraud claim I was asked to investigate was false. Block sent his findings to Trump's campaign on a rolling basis as he debunked each allegation. Today, in a new opinion piece for USA Today, Block reiterated that Trump's claims are a lie. And if voter fraud had impacted the 2020 election, it would have already been proven. And joining me now is Ken Block, owner of Sympatico Software Systems and author of Disproven, my unbiased research, my unbiased search for voter fraud from the Trump campaign, the data that shows why he lost and how we can improve our election systems, which comes out in March. Mr. Block, thank you so much for being here. Let me start with this. When you started looking at these voter fraud camp- uh, voter fraud allegations, did you believe they could be true? I went into my uh, work for the Trump campaign with an open mind. I know what they wanted me to find, and what I told them before we started everything was that I would do my best, but whatever the data showed is what the data would show. Uh, And as I worked my way through the data looking for fraud on my own, it was clear pretty early on that we weren't going to come anywhere close to finding the fraud that the campaign needed us to try to find. 
Uh, Rudy Giuliani uh, has been sued for defamation uh, successfully by two election poll workers who he defamed, uh, claiming they committed voter fraud. Did you find, and he, he's still insisting, even after that, that he was correct about that. Did you find anything that happened in Georgia that would indicate fraud by election officials at all? So, no, but to, to be clear, my task and what my area of expertise is, is looking at voter data. And so the claims of voter fraud that I was asked to evaluate were claims that were made based upon someone's interpretation of data. What Rudy Giuliani brought forward in terms of his allegations against uh, Ruby Friedman, for example, were, well, other than the fact that they were straight up lies, as he admitted, uh, there was no data behind those allegations. It was an interpretation of the video. And I had nothing to do with that. What was the reaction when you would repeat sort of on a rolling basis, there's no fraud here, there's no fraud in Arizona, there's no fraud in Michigan? As you would tell them that, what was the campaign's reaction? Yeah, so as uh, the first couple of claims they asked me to look at, uh, the, the question was, can you tell me if this is right? You know, help me, help us understand. By the end, every claim I was given was, was prefaced with, tell me why this one is wrong. Okay, so the Washington Post did something very similar. They looked at these voter fraud sort of crackdowns that are happening in Republican states. And they analyzed Texas, Florida, Ohio, Virginia, Arkansas, and Georgia. They found a grand total of 47 convictions during a period in which tens of millions of votes were cast. 76% of those defendants whose race and ethnicity could be identified were black or Hispanic, while white people constituted 24% of those who were prosecuted for something like errors and mistakes in voting. Did the Trump campaign seem particularly interested in precincts where lots of black and brown people lived? So my my work was on a statewide basis. I didn't drill down into specific, specific precincts or counties. Uh, the work that I did particularly was looking for deceased voters, was looking for duplicate voters. And, and we were taking as much of a national look at that as we could. The claims that came to me that others brought were also more or less statewide claims as opposed to anything that was uh, dealing with down, especially down at the precinct level. Uh, yeah. No, there was nothing like that. And so you didn't find claims that millions and millions of dead people voted, millions and millions of people voted using other people's names, that kind of thing. Yeah, we didn't find uh, any. There was no data that I was able to, to uncover that showed enough voter fraud that could have altered any election result in any state that we had. To the campaign's yeah. credit, as we worked our way through this, the lawyers I reported to were interested in the truth of the matter. They accepted mm -hmm. what I told them. They brought my information to Mark Meadows, and they told Mark Meadows, who was Trump's Trump's chief staff at the time, that no fraud was determined that the campaign sure. could find. Uh, uh -huh. And then we learned that Mark Meadows took that information and brought it to the Oval Office. So my work found its way all the way into the Oval Office, and they knew that uh, the campaign, through my efforts, was unable to not only find fraud on its own, but all the other claims of fraud we were asked to look at were most definitely false. Very interesting to know, as Mark Meadows now faces a trial uh, for maybe not acting on the information you gave him. Ken Block, thank you very much. Best of luck with the book, and we'll be right back.
On Friday, South Africa launched a case at the United Nations top court accusing Israel of genocide against Palestinians in Gaza. South Africa is asking the court to order Israel to halt its bombardment of the narrow strip, which has killed 22,000 people, heavily including women and children, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry. Today, the Israeli government said it would contest South Africa's genocide accusations, calling the filing, quote, an absurd blood libel. The move by South Africa is the first such challenge made at the court over the current war. It's also far from the first time South Africa has sided with the Palestinian cause. For decades, South African leaders have likened the plight of Palestinians to that of South Africa's black majority during the apartheid era from 1948 to 1991, a period when Israel supported the white South African apartheid regime. South Africa's ruling African National Congress, the party of South Africa's best-known freedom fighter and first post-apartheid president, Nelson Mandela, has deep ties to the Palestinian Liberation Organization. After Mandela's release from prison in 1990, he was a vocal supporter of the PLO and its leader, Yasser Arafat. Mandela also declared that Palestine was the greatest moral issue of our time. His support for the Palestinian cause is perhaps more relevant today than ever before, as his country, 10 years after his death, accuses Israel of genocide. South Africa's filing also comes as Israel's national security minister, Itamar Ben-Gavir, and Israeli finance minister, Belazel Smotrich, have said the quiet part out loud, expressing support for evicting Palestinians en masse from the Gaza Strip. At his party's meeting, Ben-Gavir said the war presents an opportunity to concentrate on encouraging the migration of the residents of Gaza, while Smotrich said Palestinians leaving Gaza would make way for Israelis who could, quote, make the desert bloom. The Biden State Department has condemned the statements, calling them inflammatory and irresponsible. Now, it should be noted that the mass transfer of populations from their homeland is not just irresponsible talk. It could be considered ethnic cleansing under international law, and doing so by creating unlivable conditions that essentially force mass immigration could be considered genocide. We will stay on this story as it develops. And that is tonight's readout. Hey, everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. 